You're listening to the Contract Heroes Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things contract management. And now here are your hosts, Mark and Pepe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Contract Hero Podcast. And in this show, we got Jerry Silver. He is the Vice President and Deputy General Counsel of Verizon Business Group. So glad to have you here, Jerry. Thank you very much for inviting me. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks to you. And Jerry's at for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and some about your background? Sure. I'll try to be brief. And if I drone on for too long, please interrupt me and just ask me to stop. And I will. So um, I'll, I'll start with where I grew up, really. And I'm not going to go through every single thing, but it's important, I think, to understand kind of person that I've become. I understand a little bit about where I grew up. I grew up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan before it was really a cool place to live. It's now a super cool place to live, um, but it wasn't back then. It was a pretty tough area back then. And, you know, it didn't take long for me to realize that sports was not going to be my ticket out, if you will, right? Had the height for basketball, but not really a whole lot else. Um, so I, I realized that my ticket out was going to be education. Um, I had to work really hard gained acceptance to a uh, an academic type high school, Stuyvesant, that required an entrance exam. And I got there, um, and I realized there are a lot of other smart people out there also. You know? um, and so, again, I realized when I have to work even harder, I'm going to compete with, with these people. Um, anyway, uh, it was a good experience in, in high school, go on to college, and I take some classes in college on uh, broadcasting. I found I liked working the cameras and uh, the soundboard and everything, but I also enjoyed the business of broadcasting and really understanding the legal issues around the media, First Amendment, um, and I actually did very well in those classes, certainly better than I did in, bi in the biology classes, as an example. Um, this whole idea of one of the concepts we learned was, uh, the marketplace of ideas, John Milton found it, it's really a precursor to social media these days. You know, the idea that everyone has the ability to get his or her voice heard in the marketplace of ideas. Um, uh, so I had a thesis to do my senior year. Um, I did that on an area of regulation of broadcasting, probably the first sign that I may have an interest in the law. I say may, because I certainly was not sure at that point. But after undergraduate, um, I applied both to law school and graduate school. I chose to go to graduate school at Penn State because, frankly, the, the courses in grad school just seemed much more interesting to me based on my interests at that time. Um, a mixture of practical courses. You go out, you cover the city council meetings, you come back and you write your story. Um, but again, there were lots of classes on the, the business issues of media and the legal issues. Um, one of the professors I had was a non-lawyer, but who taught all the law classes there. Um, and uh, he became a mentor of mine, uh, helped me get my thesis done. Actually, uh, was published. And um, for what it's worth, he told me, go go on and get a PhD and not to become a lawyer. 
uh, which I found really interesting since he taught all the law classes. Um, brief aside, if I can, um, at Penn State, I've been located in State College in Pennsylvania, same place where AccuWeather, the forecaster, is located. And AccuWeather was looking for someone to teach their meteorologists how to write for broadcasting. One of my professors recommended me for that job. It was a really cool gig uh, for someone who was still in grad school. That's beer money out of it. But also, it was a good opportunity to learn a new writing style. You're trying to explain science, weather forecasting to a mass audience. Not something I had done previously and working with these really interesting scientists and trying to explain to them how to get their points across, something that lawyers and legal professionals always do. You need to figure out how to get your point across to whomever you're writing. That was really my first experience there. Um, worked for ABC Radio News for a little while after that, after grad school. Um, really enjoyed knowing the news before anybody else did. Right, you're in the newsroom. There's a level of excitement. There's always some kind of a disaster happening, whether it's a train crash or you know a a disaster of some sort. Um, but I still wanted to explore the law. I wasn't quite sure that this was where I wanted to be. Um, after a while, I applied to a number of of law firms. I think fifty, as a matter of fact, on a broad scale, sending out unsolicited resumes. Um, and I, I landed a job as a paralegal uh, at a law firm, a small firm, about eight lawyers all together, and we represented TV and radio stations. Um, and um, that, that was a pretty good introduction to the law. Um, eventually became a partner there, went, went to law school at night, I should say, first. Um, they encouraged me to go there, um, and, um, you have a partner there and we tried cases before the FCC, uh, so appellate work, did some M&A work. Of course, we handle all the regulatory work for our clients. Um, I want to get back for a minute, I can, about writing style. So there were two main partners in this office, um, and each one would ask me to draft memos for them or draft letters for them, write briefs for them. And I discovered very quickly that each had a very different writing style. I don't know if it's because one went to Harvard and one went to Yale, but their, their, their writing styles could not have been more different. One was very crisp in his writing style, the other much more flowery, it used rather arcane words that I had to look up all the time. Um, and I, I mentioned it because, again, it reminded me of different writing styles, reminded me to uh, think about my audience. Um, and again, that's really a talent that we in the legal world still use. You write, you write differently if you're writing a brief for a judge or an email to your team. Uh, but either way, it's hugely important because I truly believe that you're judged by others based on how well you write. Are you approachable? You can tell that from the tone of your email. You know, are you empathetic? Are you kind? So, um, I, again, just 
knowing um, your audience and knowing who you're writing for, really, really important. Um, at that small firm, I also began something that I do to this day, which is I teach uh, as, a, as a side gig, began teaching a class on media law, modeled in large part on those classes I took at Penn State. Um, and uh, these days I teach a class in marketing law and ethics. Yes, we combine law and ethics in the same class. Um, this is to students who are pursuing a degree in, in marketing. Um, so that's the early years, right? Um, right, and and I I really like when you when you said that you have to focus on your audience when you need to write something, right? And that's exactly uh, what takes me to the next question because, like, the interaction of the legal team. A lot of a lot of the people think about the, the legal department as like uh, as independent world, right? But the, but in the real life, it's like legal team interacts with everybody, and especially when we're talking about contracts, right? And one of the things that we've been uh, talking about with our most recent guests and during the event in the in the in the world CC is the importance of having very uh, first of all reasonable terms because that that's going to help you during the negotiation process, but also how you write them because at the end if you want of the some of the departments to start um having a playbook on how to ne ne negotiate terms without having to knock the door of the legal team every time somebody makes a small red line uh inside uh in inside that the, the contract i think that's one of the most important things when you want to uh you know make this uh business deals more fluent uh, without having uh, legal be uh, oh, of course they need to get involved in the in the contracting process but there are some contracts that uh, we we've seen that can be like uh, contracting uh, self-service where the departments as procurement sales can can work on their own and uh, so Jerry can you describe a little bit uh, like how this the work of uh, legal ops team inside a company like how do they interact with the legal department and with the other teams inside the company? Yeah, I think that's, that's a great question because most companies of any size these days are matrixed, right? And you need to work with very disparate groups. Um, like as far as I'm concerned, the number one requirement is got to be some kind of trust between legal ops and the general counsel, right? Um, because without that trust, I don't think you're going to get a uh, good result. Um, that trust comes, in my opinion, from an acknowledgement that the legal ops team, those professionals who are working there, have skills that you, as a lawyer, for example, might not have. And th that's a hard pill for lawyers to swallow. You I mean, yes, some people are better at some things than you are. I know you haven't been told that your entire life, but it, it's really true. So you, you, you're paying the legal ops people good money, hopefully. Get out of the way and let them do their job. Um, I'll get me wrong. You know, the legal ops person has to understand the priorities of the general counsel um, and explain to the general counsel how their plan is going to accomplish those goals. But once the green light is given, once they align on that, 
I really think the general counsel has to just get out of the way. Um, legal ops has to be sure that their plan uh, was going to bring about the desired result, whether it's a decrease in expenditures or increasing the diversity of employees or increasing the diversity of the vendors that you work with, improving the analytics, what, what, whatever the particular job is. But at the end of the day, it's about trust and relationships. And we could talk for another hour about the importance of those. Um, that really is the most important way or the most efficient way to get the things done in a matrixed organization. You need to build those relationships with the people with whom you collaborate with. And you just need to figure out how to get that done, right? You know, maybe it's, maybe it's having a drink after work. Maybe it's working on a major project that requires you to work late hours into the evenings together. Maybe it's a pro bono project. I don't know. Maybe uh, you just need to show you care by asking your colleague about a family member. Um, but you know, it's super important, in my opinion, to build those relationships and keep them up. You know, in prepping for for this uh, this podcast, we're talking a little bit how how difficult it is for people who have joined new organizations during the pandemic to develop those relationships. You know, we're working, most of us at least are working either at home full time or in a hybrid role right now where we're not seeing the same people in the office on a regular basis. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that is something that I'm concerned about. In my company, we're working on uh, moments that matter, bringing people into the office uh, for moments that matter. Uh, but I just think it's really important to find a way, whatever works with your style, to build those relationships up, whether it's with legal ops people or with your, your, your subject matter experts in tax or information technology, wherever, because you know, you're not going to be able to do it alone. You're going to need other people to help you get that deal done. And the best way to get that done is to have the relationships. And Jerry, when when do you see organizations, when's the right time uh, to bring in somebody to handle that legal ops role? Is it when you purchase your first piece of legal technology? Is it when you have a certain number of lawyers on the team? Is there anything that's kind of a you know, green light that says, okay, hey, we, we need to bring somebody in to, to run the legal ops department now? You know, I don't know there's a bright line, but, but certainly I would do it prior to purchasing that equipment. You know, not afterwards, because uh, they hopefully the legal ops folks have that expertise. Um, but um, I th I think when whoever is performing those functions now find that they're spending more time on that than they should be, and not able to spend time on the legal work that they should be spending their time on, that's probably a sign. Uh, that it's time to bring in someone who really specializes in this stuff, who's a professional in the legal ops area, uh, and can help to to drive us towards success. 
Yeah, that makes a lot, a lot of sense because now you have a team that knows like the processes and all the pre-work that you need to do before doing an, an implementation uh, work with with any vendor, right? So um, yeah, we've seen we've we've seen in our previous episodes that there's uh, well, well, right now people and or or organizations are are more aware that you need to do a lot of work, uh, a lot of homework before. Uh, uh, you know, purchasing a new piece of technology, especially because you you need to know your processes. And people who are like you say are not usually lawyers; they're like engineers that have more experience uh, handling project management um, uh, tasks and and this this type of skills that that we don't get them. You know, like right. in school or uh, or in, uh, working on a law firm. So it's it's very good to bring somebody that has some experience there to understand, get the trust of the team, and then start looking for a piece of technology that can be uh, useful for the company. And uh, Jeremy, it's any uh, how how has any uh, legal tech tool or piece of technology uh, has helped uh, the operation of the legal team that you uh, that that you work with. Yeah, so look, I'm not an expert on on legal tech, but I could talk about it from the standpoint of a user, right? Yes. Um, it's clear to me uh, that the technology has advanced a lot in the last few years. Um, a number of vendors out there is through the roof. I mean, you know, I can't tell you how many emails I get a day. Um, so I think the adage of buyer beware is appropriate here. Um, I do know situations where um, CLM systems have not lived up to their potential. Um, and I think that's probably because the expectations were set too high in the first place, right? Um, you're expecting the expectations all the way up here and they don't quite meet there, then you're a disappointed buyer, which is not a good thing. Um, the the other point that that I'll make is that what has become clear to me as, as we've dabbled in the area is that whether it's contract lifecycle management or artificial intelligence, machine learning, it's never going to replace the need for some human interaction. Yeah, you know, I think the initial reaction of anybody when they hear that, you know, a company is going to be bringing in AI is that's it. Everybody's going to be out of their jobs. It seems to me that these tools actually make our jobs easier, um, allow us to focus on more important things. Um, and um, everything I see it really has indicated that humans who understand the deal and the needs of the, the counterparties are still going to be needed to act on the information that we get from these tools. So, um, you know, think that there's there's a hell of a lot of opportunity out there certainly but it's got to be the right tool for the right situation the right use case um and just keep your expectations appropriate don't think that it's going to be the the end of the world you know uh because usually um there's there's just a lot of work that has to be done when you acquire a tool like that before you begin to get the benefit out of it yeah, I, you know that's definitely something that we we've seen and that we talk about is AI is not the 
it's not at a level where some folks think it is yet. And, yeah. and you definitely still need people and processes to make the most out of either, whether it be a piece of software or AI technology, you know, you're always going to need folks in certain positions. Uh, but like you said, Jerry, it, it definitely can make your job easier to do. And I think that's that's what it's capable of right now. And, you know, w- when we talk about people and we talk about processes, you know, Pepe and I obviously were just at the World CC event in Phoenix uh, last week. And, and you know, something that uh, we wanted to talk about was the contracting principles and, and how they can improve on the efficiency of an organization. So could could you give us an understanding of, you know, what those are and, and how they can help an organization? Yeah, sure. Um, and unlike uh, area of legal tech, this is actually something I, I do know something about. So uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks for the question, Mark. Um, well, why don't we start with what the contracting principles are, presuming that your audience has different levels of understanding of it. Um, the, the principles really are, are voluntary suggestions, right? Uh, my, my colleagues in antitrust made that very clear to me at the beginning. These are voluntary suggestions um, based on conglomeration of experience, experience of buyers and, and sellers and consultants and academics others about where two parties to an agreement most likely will land on a particular issue after the dance is over. So after weeks of negotiation, back and forth, and some yelling and screaming maybe, and red lines going back and forth, we we, we all know pretty much where we usually are going to land on a particular issue, give or take 10%, say. These principles are cross-industry guidelines that have been deemed to be fair by people who do this for a living each and every day, both sides, buyers and sellers, consultants, as I said. And so the, the value proposition really is, why don't we save our respective clients some time here and just agree to craft language that aligns with these principles? We, we started, I'm going to say, about um, six years ago, maybe eight years ago now, with about six principles. I was involved in helping to craft those. Um, the World CC has just published a latest edition. Uh, I don't have the number of principles, but I can tell you there are 83 pages in the document that I've got um, on the side to read at some point. So it obviously has evolved, has exploded. As I mentioned, I got involved at the beginning uh, at the suggestion of my general counsel. Um, and though I haven't been active as active as I used to be, I continue to evangelize for their adoption because I just think it's it's low-hanging fruit. You know, everyone's looking to um, shorten the deal cycle. How can we get this done more quickly? Um, in the telecom space, I know World CC. Research show that complex agreements in the telecom space take an average of 31 weeks to complete. I'll let that sink in. 31 weeks for a complex deal to be completed. Really, anything that we can do to reduce that time is a win for both sides, right? The, the vendor gets the revenue more quickly. 
the buyer gets a solution that they're buying more quickly. Um, and so I just think that anyone um, who's looking to simplify their contracts and who isn't being told by their business people to simplify their contracts, right? Everyone. And who isn't being told by their business people to shorten the time it takes to get to yes. I think the principle should be looked at for each of those reasons. Um, and I, I'll just say a shameless plug here, even though I'm not as involved as I used to be, there was someone on my team who's picked up the mantle lead of Ball, Ball and Polly, who was at the Phoenix conference, was there. Um, and she's picked up the mantle and worked with others, including Hal Breton as well, who really has taken this on as a labor of love. So um, it just seems to me the principles are something to be looked at. You don't have to adopt them all. Uh, adopt three, four, five, and see how they go. See if you're really able to spend less time negotiating an indemnification clause, right, uh, or an audit clause. Um, because as I said at the beginning, we all know pretty much where we're going to land at the end of the day. So why go through this whole dance and spend everybody's money? Anyway, those are my views on the principles. I mean, I'm happy to expand on them. Have any other questions? But we can talk about something else. Whatever you guys want. <laughs> Great. So, Jerry, uh, so we talk a lot uh, about people, trust, processes, and 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 now, uh, well, the contracting principles, like how you can voluntarily involve those principles into your contracting progress, right? Process. I mean, and, well, and let's say that's like for the pre-signature or pre-award space. But now that we have this piece of technology, and 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 uh, I like your approach as a, as a user like any kind of recommendations on 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 how data has um helped your work or 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 any other kind of data that is that is helping you to uh to you you you, you, you know um manage those contracts yeah whole signature like yeah. how have it helped your team i actually was asked a similar question by my boss not too long ago because Let's face it, with budgets being tight everywhere these days, we kind of need to pick and choose our battles, right? So he asked me to, you know, pick one or two um, items like this that, that that we ought to be focusing on. And I think that, you know, post-signature contract obligation extraction, I, I know that's a mouthful, post-signature contract obligation extraction, and monitoring would probably be my answer. Um, it seems to me that that is the most effective way to plug the value leakage from contracts that WorldCC says is about 9.2%, right, um, that we know of, which means that there are some contracts where the value leakage is even more, right, which is a scary thought. Um, but it needs to be systematic. It needs to cover both parties. Uh, one party fails to perform a contractual obligation. I think it's really incumbent on the other, on the counterparty, to call it out in this spirit of partnership. It's equally important, it seems to me, whether you're the buyer or the seller, if you agree to do something, you need to live up to that obligation. Um, where the contract is signed and put in a drawer and never looked at until there's a major dispute 
that's where you run into problems, it seems to me. But by keeping everybody, you know, on board and in line, um, I, I think that being able to extract these obligations out, you know, every four months you're going to have a meeting, and these are the people who are going to be at the meeting, and the agenda for that meeting will be one, two, three, and how close are we meeting? How close are we to meeting our objectives? Um, so there are no surprises, and you know, if things are beginning to go off the rails. Isn't it better to catch that earlier in the life cycle of a contract than wait for the lawyer letter, right? That you're now default. Nobody wants that. So um, that 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 I think is the um, the the data um, challenge that I would seek to alleviate. Make sure that we extract the obligations out, assign an owner to each of them follow up with them, make sure that both parties are doing their thing. I, I also spoke to Tim about this um, about a year or so ago. Uh, we had a call from World CC. I told him, you know, the one area of this I don't think people have been addressing really is think about the impact it has on the deal team, right? These deals are never easy. Um, take a lot of effort, oftentimes evenings, people having to work on the weekends, um, to get a fair deal signed um, that both parties feel good for their respective companies. And people work hard to get a concession or to figure out a scheme that's going to work. Um, think about the impact to the deal team when their work isn't even looked at, where you know, the contract should say, here's what you do, and no one even does it. At some point, the deal team is going to lose confidence, lose their enterprise, lose their desire to do a great job if they think they know what's reading the contract, right? So I think that's another area to think about, you know, the impact on the deal team, on the pursuit team of not extracting the obligations, following up on them, making sure both sides abide by what they've agreed on. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, and it, it's a, a theme that we've been talking about a lot when it comes to the, the data that's inside of contracts. And if, if a system is put in place and all you're doing is throwing your contracts in it and you're not tracking any of the obligations or meeting with the team to review that information, you're really not getting all of the value that you could be out of out of that. You know, in this case, probably a CLM tool. And and I think um, you know what it allows you to do is it gives the legal team the leverage that all other departments have because they're already tracking all of this information on on the info that they need to store. And now the legal team is able to go into these meetings with other departments and show that they also have this information and show that they're not a cost center and they're actually one of the the backbones of the organization. So, you know, Jerry, I love I love what you said about that. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, hey, and I, I, you know, this has been a great conversation. I, I think we, we could probably talk about this all day, but um, w I think we're going to go ahead and, and wrap up here. So, Jerry, if folks want to connect with you uh, to, to have a, a conversation, go more in depth about this, uh, wh where's the best place to do that? Sure. Um, uh, my email address is J-E-R-O-M-E dot silber, S-I-L-B, like boy, E-R, at verizon.com. I'm on LinkedIn as well. 
Um, those are probably the two easiest ways to reach me, but um, ha happy to, to continue the conversation with anyone who has an interest in it. I think this is fascinating stuff, and I think it, it helps to define uh, what we do as a profession as well. That's why I love the work that's done by World CC. It really takes it to the next level. Um, and so I want to thank you guys again for hosting me. Appreciate it. Um, and I hope you got something out of it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jerry. We appreciate having you on as well. And thanks to everybody that's listening. We hope to have you back here soon for another episode of Contract Heroes. Mm -hmm.